The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. President Trump invokes a wartime law to get more swabs produced as he rebukes accusations from governors that they don't have enough testing equipment to reopen their states. Light crude prices get crushed amid concerns the U.S. is about to hit storage capacity, sending the May WTI contract to its lowest level since 1999. The ECB reportedly considers creating a European bad bank to try to avoid another non-performing loan crisis but faces opposition from Brussels to stick to current state aid rules. Elsewhere, Germany reopens parts of its economy today, whilst Spain extends but does ease some restrictions. And cracks appear in the UK government over to when to end the UK lockdown. And earnings season gets into full swing on both sides of the Atlantic. Refinitiv are saying they expect U.S. first quarter earnings to drop at least 14%. Coming up shortly on the program, we're going to talk to the CEO of Philips as they deliver numbers. A number of U.S. governors have clashed with President Trump over his claims that states have sufficient coronavirus testing in place as part of their plans to reopen the U.S. economy. Both Republican and Democratic state leaders called Trump's comments delusional and absolutely false. Trump hit back at the criticism, tweeting that he is right on testing and calling on governors to get the job done. Street demonstrations against virus containment measures broke out across the U.S. over the weekend. The protests, mainly of whom were organised by conservative political groups, called on lawmakers to relax lockdowns and reopen the US economy. President Trump defended the demonstrators, calling them great people. The Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, said the demonstrations were putting people at risk. I know that people are angry and that's okay. And if you want to take it out and send it my way, makes you feel better, that's fine. I support your right to free speech and I respect your opinions. I just urge you, don't put yourself at risk and don't put others at risk either. New York Fed President John Williams told CNBC that the US economy is not likely to see a recovery from the coronavirus pandemic in the short term. We have a lot of economic pain that we're experiencing today and that's likely to continue for some time as these necessary uh, measures have been taken to limit the spread of the coronavirus uh, continue to hold down the economy. So although I'm hopeful about uh, the eventual uh, bounce back to the economy and the recovery and getting the economy back to full strength, I still think we've got some uh, tough days ahead. And that's why we're working uh, so hard to support the economy during this difficult period. China has cut its benchmark lending rate for a second time this year after the economy shrank for the first time in decades. The one-year loan prime rate was lowered by 20 basis points to 3.85%, a move that was widely anticipated. Beijing has started to reopen the Chinese economy after data showed a 6.8% drop in GDP growth for the first quarter. China remained in President Trump's firing line as he again questioned the government's handling of the outbreak. 
if they were knowingly responsible, certainly, if they did, if it was a mistake, a mistake is a mistake. But if they were knowingly responsible, yeah, then there should be consequences. Uh, you're talking about, you know, potentially lives like nobody's seen since 1917. Here's a look at the Asian markets today, picking up on what was a strong run on Wall Street, but weathering a plunge in the oil price this morning. You can see across the region, it's choppy with markets that are Australia and Japan trading weak, down about one odd percent almost up for both of those markets. In contrast to the cuts to the lending rate that you've seen in the Chinese market have been supportive for the stock market. We've bounced about a third of a percent there. And in each way, you can see for the Hong Kong market on the flat line as it eyes the gains in China, but also the weakness stemming from elsewhere. Treasuries, and uh, let's take a look at that safe haven bid as we come into what will be an interesting week. A lot of market participants concerned about how aggressive the moves were to the upside last week. Some of it based on hopes that there'll be a reopening of economies, a gradual reopening, also that there might be treatments and vaccines in the work. Not a lot of evidence still to reinforce that, but uh, there was certainly more of a risk on move rather than necessarily a bid for safety. That said, this yield remains at the low of 0.63 is what we've got on that 10-year. I want to show you the US market activity because it was a fairly decent pickup we saw across the course of the week. This is how we finished up shop. Uh, gains of close to 3% for the likes of the Dow, 2.7 on the S&P and one4 on the Nasdaq. But the gains that you witnessed for the course of the week, the Dow rallying about 2.2%, second positive week in a row. We're now about 18% off the all-time highs, less when it comes to the S&P, about 15%. And when it comes to the tech-heavy Nasdaq, this may explain the other performance to you in session Friday, only about 12% off those record highs. And that's quite extraordinary, you think, 12% from the record highs, given how strong those tech moves were at the start of this year. And we saw fresh records even in session for the last week or so for the likes of Amazon as investors continue to play in some of the themes where they think they can find growth at this point. Now, U.S. futures, this is how we perched ahead of the session. You can see a weekday now anticipated as we get into the thick of earnings season. We had a lot of banks reporting last week, but we'll have many more companies uh, coming up with a uh, show and tell this week as to what exactly they think the damage bill will be at this stage from coronavirus. Still early days, but uh, now they're starting to anticipate around the lockdowns, not just on the supply chain disruptions as we started out the pandemic. And let me show you what we've now got on oil markets, because this is one challenging chart for a lot of investors to get through. We saw last week that there was a big fall in the oil price anyway on WTI. We were down roughly about 8% Friday session. We'd fallen about 19% over the course of the week. But this is how we are now perched this morning. You can see the expiration of the May contract come tomorrow has caused that price to plunge. We're down 19% and 14.66, the, the number that you're seeing on the screens, in contrast to what you've got on the June levels. It's not down as much, down about 5% roughly, 23.66. So somewhat of a technical factor playing out around that May contract. And you can see Brent just tipping south by 1.5%. But I want to get Jeff and Steve back in on this point around oil prices because what jumps out to me in contrast to the stock market action Investors are going back into other assets, but they're not willing to go back into the oil price. And is this the canary in the coal mine or is it a catch-up trade? I think that is what stands out to me this morning around this oil price. Well, let me um, defer to Steve on the supply side because he knows a lot more about that than I ever will. But I just want to focus on the demand. And it still seems to me, Karen, that in terms of the price, we are going to continue to see weakness just because the market has no real sense of the floor in terms of the demand position. And I'll just cite some coincidental indicators this morning. I was very interested to see Samir Madani um, on our air 
uh, about half an hour ago saying that we'd seen a, a, a development in terms of the weakness in Asian demand here. And obviously, the latest data out of Japan suggests the weakest level of exports into the United States in at least four years. Then you look at energy intensive industries like the steel makers and the messaging coming out of the steel industry is that we continue to see weakness and we have not got to the bottom yet. So I think as we continue to monitor this energy price from a demand perspective until we get some stabilization in the curve for coronavirus, we know it's flattening, but it isn't falling yet. We won't have any clear indication for the market around the health aspect of this crisis. And until we get some stabilization in the economic numbers coming out of industries like steelmakers and so on and so forth, then we won't have any clear signal that we might have reached a point where we can establish equilibrium between demand and supply. Steve. Yeah, I, absolutely. All of the above from both of you. But there's a lot going on into this oil complex at the moment. And I flagged up to the team about the June uh, contract being nine bucks higher, roughly, uh, than the May contract. But also, if you go out to the fall to the autumn as well, you can find $30 plus WTI. So what you've got at the moment is not only contango, but extreme contango. And actually, contango means people think better times are ahead. So to your point, Karen, I think the professionals are buying further down the line, hoping that there will be some form of uh, recovery stateside. But unfortunately, a lot of the retail investors, well, they buy ETFs and they're buying ETFs, which are basically normally premised on the front. I say normally because things are changing a little bit, but premised on the front month contract, the most liquid contract as well. So you've got this extraordinary situation where the retail investors are buying the front month of which there are huge um, demand issues. There are storage issues as well. And then having to roll up uh, and pay much more in terms of premium for forward contracts when you get the roll. And I've talked before about one of my worst instances as a trader back in 1990, where I lost out hugely uh, on the December-March FTSE roll as well. So when the roll goes out, uh, you can have huge technical problems as well. But let's go back to the supply and demand issue as well. And and the fact of the matter is that the um, storage in the United States is filling up. If you look right slap bang in the middle of America and go just down a little bit above Texas to the northeast, you'll find Oklahoma, which is where you'll find Cushing in Payne County as well. And Cushing is one of the, the biggest hubs for storage in the United States. And just to give you an example, uh, it is really now, I think it's about 57 million barrels full, where it can go up to just over 90 million barrels. The record comes from April 2017, which is uh, nearly 70 million barrels. So across the United States, there is more storage capacity, uh, but it is filling up and it is filling up very fast. And the hope is by the end of May, i.e. well after the May contract has has left us all, that there will be some uh, return to some form of demand from the US state side as well. But in the meantime, uh, as you quite rightly say, concerns about storage, lack of demand, uh, and that is causing this rupture, technical rupture in the price of the near month WTI. And of course, let's face it, across the spectrum, uh, oil is under vast amount of pressure anyway, as you pointed out, Jeff, about that Asian demand. Steve, I'm glad you gave that exclamation because that does make sense when you think about how the markets have moved. The, the moves last week were just extraordinary. You saw the rally from some of the lows over the course of the last couple of weeks. In context, you've now had almost 30% off those March lows. So investors at some point are anticipating that demand recovers. How can oil be the only component of the market that does not recover? That's effectively what we've been talking about. So it does make sense that you point out to some of the technicals that are taking place there. I think we've debated in circles the, the demand story 
and whether those OPEC and uh, the cuts by OPEC and its allies are going to be enough. So it does make sense that there should be some recovery that takes place there along with the rest of the markets. The, the point that worries me is whether the rest of the markets are now too carried away with the upside, being too quick to participate in the rally, and that with more bad news, potentially there's more selling. And we saw in banks last week there was a wobble at the start of the week as investors started to get a glimpse of the non-performing loans, how much provisioning was going to be required. And I wonder whether earnings season is a little bit more like what we're seeing in the oil market and also out of the banks. So as soon as we get clarity, you get more of a sell-off taking place in some of these assets, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, Steve makes a terrific point about how we can look forward on the curve and try and get a read on how the market professionals are trying to find price discovery. The reality is, though, of course, all we're looking at is a snapshot in time. And those prices can move very quickly if the market begins to read that the demand drought is going to last longer and be deeper than it's currently priced in. And I think it's very interesting, Karen, and quite appropriate for you to bring in other asset classes at this point, because there are all these coincidental indicators to suggest that whilst on a an equity market level, we might see some encouraging numbers as investors or speculators get a little carried away with the flattening of these uh, coronavirus curves. But for example, the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, reporting on bets against the broader stock market actually being at the highest level ever. Now, there's a company called S3 that compiles this data, and they've come out with new information over the weekend saying that bets against the Spider S&P 500 Trust, this is a a broad measure of the market, are now $68.1 billion. That is the highest number they've ever registered and is at least $20 billion on top of where we were in short bets against the market back at the beginning of 2020. So while those uh, professional oil traders may be trying to look at this price being somewhere in the 30s, uh, several months out here, the reality is there are plenty of other people in the market right now who still think there's a lot more downside to be seen, not only in equity prices, but in energy prices as well, Karen. Um, yeah, and I'll just jump in very quickly. Uh, T.S. Lombard piece out of the weekend, which I, I think I flagged up to all of you. Uh, the chief economist there, Charles Dumas, thinks, nah, with this rally is wrong. I'll give you some examples of what he thinks. He thinks S&P is going to bottom out below 2,000 most likely this summer. Consumers will not quickly rebound and abandon social distancing. High unemployment, lower income expectations are factors. Uh, virus risk in sports events, theatres, restaurants and bars to remain. Tax cuts are unlikely to cause much spending if consumers are inhibited as well. There are a whole host of other reasons why he thinks this is a false dawn. Back to you both. Right, of course. And uh, we're going to squeeze in a quick break coming up on the show. Philips reports earnings after ramping up ventilator production in response to the coronavirus pandemic. CEO Franz Van Houten will join us right after the break. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
We've got numbers crossing for you from Philips. This is for the first quarter. And when it comes to sales at 4.16 billion versus 4.15 billion same time a year ago, companies saying the impact of COVID-19 gradually increased over the course of Q1, initially affecting our business in China and Asia Pacific starting late January. Uh, Q1 net income at 39 million versus 162 million same time a year ago. The company's saying uh, coronavirus affected their business from uh, the rest of the world from March onwards, and they expect that all geographies will be impacted through the second quarter. This is expected to result in a steep revenue decline for their personal health business and a sizable high single-digit decline for their diagnosis and treatment business. Q1 adjusted EBITDA at $244 million versus $364 million same time a year ago. They expect a significant increase in the revenue of connected care business, though, and they aim to return to growth and improve profitability for growth in the second half of the year. Let's bring in Franz Van Houten, who is the CEO of Philips. Friends, uh, clearly extraordinary times. Just explain what you're going through because there's been some demand for your products that have been on the front line treating the virus, but you've also seen the impact on consumption habits. So just explain what you're wading through at this point. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Uh, it really is a tale of two stories with some of our company growing and working at breakneck speed to produce as many critical care uh, ventilators, monitors, and diagnostic equipment as we possibly can. Um, and at the same time, we see a slowdown in elective procedures, uh, for example, that can be postponed by hospitals, as well as, of course, the consumer business that is affected as consumers by fewer products. Uh, we first saw this happening in China, then in Europe, and, and now across the world. Um, and we expect uh, this impact to become a bit bigger in the second quarter as we then will see the depth of the pandemic globally. At the same time, our order book is strong and uh, we expect a gradual resumption uh, of consumer uh, sentiment as we could already st start to see in China, in fact. Um, and that also gives us confidence to say that the second half of the year uh, will likely be uh, showing a positive uh, revenue growth. Of course, that, that does take several assumptions like the resumption of elective procedures, consumers becoming uh, you know, more confident, and hospitals allowing us to install that strong order book um, as we go. Franz, I never thought I'd have to ask you how resilient your company is, uh, but I'm just uh, looking at your free cash flow numbers. You've had free cash uh, outflow of 57 million euros versus outflow of 206 a year ago. How well resourced is this company if we do have to weather more lockdowns over coming months? Do you need to tap government support? We do not expect that uh, we need to tap government support at this time. Uh, we have uh, a, a strong liquidity uh, position. We have, uh, of course, taken additional measures. Uh, we have issued a bond in the first quarter. Um, secondly, we have taken measures to uh, safeguard our cash positions. We will go to the shareholders to transform uh, the dividend into an all-share dividend. We are keeping the dividend over 2019, as important to underline. Um, and altogether, we feel confident about uh, the resilience that Philips uh, represents. 
France, very good morning to you. Strange times, my friend, but needs us must, I guess. Can I ask you, you mentioned the slight improvement that you're seeing in Eurasia business and China specifically as China now begins, we think, to come through the other side of coronavirus 19. Can I ask you to put a bit more flesh on that story? Because I think we're all keen to understand whether there is a template that we in the West can follow. And I was a little disappointed to see actually the rebound in retail sales in the last data was not as strong as some had been expecting. So it does raise questions about whether it's a V-shape, a U-shape or an L-shape recovery we have in prospect. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Well, in China, we have seen that online sales through online retailers is resuming much faster than consumer sales in retail brick and mortar stores uh, where uh, the streets in china are still quite empty and um, so the the online sales is is not yet fully back to normal levels but uh, getting there Um, what that means for the western world of course is too early to say but i would assume that also in the Western world, the online revenue will re- recover faster than the high street sales. Um, on your question of you know, what kind of a recovery is it? Um, I would say that what we see for 2020 should not be a proxy for the, for the world economy recovery. And that has to do with the fact that we have a strong order book Um, customers, hospitals have postponed some installations from the first half into the second half as they were focused uh, on dealing with the pandemic. Uh, Moreover, we have, let's say, some of that um, crisis demand on ventilators and monitors that will uh, support uh, the revenue growth. Um, That makes us expecting a strong second half of the year and an overall modest revenue growth for the whole year. Um, and But as I said, that doesn't say much yet about how the econom- economy uh, will recover overall. Um, we, we are all concerned uh, that this has a major impact on the world economy. Uh, Franz, very good morning to you. Um, you had concerns last month about the Defence Production Act as well and the ramifications for protectionism and globalisation. But surely, if anything, this uh, this pandemic has shown us we need to have a certain degree more of reshoring in certain economies in order to make sure that uh, the right facilities, diagnostics, testing, production is available as and when needed as well. Do you fear that globalisation as we know it is done? Well, I I take that as two separate questions, if I may. So first, uh, the preparedness of health systems around the world has shown that not all countries are equally prepared and that the need or the capacity for intensive care beds uh, has been too low in several countries. And so we expect a a strengthening of uh, intensive care capacity. Uh, What we have also seen is, is that Uh, the crisis will spur and accelerate the adoption of telehealth and cloud-based technologies to enable health workers, radiologists, pathologists to work remotely and also to connect to patients remotely as many uh, patients can also be supported uh, while they are in their homes uh, or other care locations. I, I, I see in that a validation of the Philips strategy around 
the continuum of care and leveraging informatics to stitch up, let's say, the whole care system. Um, at the same time, technologies are um, uh, built from components that come from the whole world. And that's the second part of your question. You know, how do we see the global supply chain evolving? Philips has factories uh, in every major continent. We, ha we have strong manufacturing base, for example, in the United States. But we are still dependent on core components coming from multiple countries. And frankly speaking, I do not expect that to change quickly. This is also why I have argued that we need to keep global supply chains open. It's the only way to ramp up the critical care production, equipment production that the world needs. And at Philips, we are very focused on doing that. We are investing over 100 million euro to expand capacity to make as many ventilators, monitors, and diagnostic equipment as we possibly can. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.